Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. If you're a guest with us, we are glad you're here. We're glad we get to worship together. Let us open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And this morning I want us to read verses 4 through 7. Although our meditations will focus on verse 6. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, the Christmas season is uh, officially over as far as the celebrations go. However, the point of Christmas, or better yet, the point of the Incarnation of the Son of God was not to become a seasonal celebration, but to change the world, to change the world. Hence the timing of Christmas. The birth of Jesus brought with it the fullness of time, meaning the climax of human history. Is there more still to come? Absolutely. Jesus will come back again and bring the final consummation to what he started on that first Christmas night. But the work has already begun. The world is no longer the same place it was prior to the incarnation. I would like to remind you of a parallel that I drew a few weeks ago between the birth of Jesus and the first birth on earth, the birth of Cain from Adam and Eve. When Cain was born... He was born into a world that did not look like the one God had originally created. By the time of Cain's birth, sin had already entered the human realm, and Cain felt its immediate effects when he resented and then murdered his own brother Abel. That, my friends, was a new world. For a new principle was at work called sin, of which jealousy and murder are just one or two of its many manifestations. With the entrance of sin, creation itself had changed for the worse. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, Cain would have been born into a perfect place. But it certainly was not a perfect place. Sin in this sense, could be understood as a type of deformity in God's good creation. It is a corruption. As I have said before, sin, what it does is dehumanizes humans. Sin dehumanizes humans. That's a strong word. Am I sure about that? Yes, I am, because sin is a distortion of what humans were meant to be from the beginning. And what is it that humans were meant to be from the beginning? They were meant to be 
the image of who? The image of God. True humanity in its fullest sense is about imaging God. How can we do that when sin has entered? Sin corrupts that image. Cain, therefore, was born into a changed corrupted, distorted world because he himself was now under the principle of sin. But when Jesus was born, also of a woman, and under the law, something was completely different. Even though the world into which he was born was the same as Cain's, he brought with himself something new, never before seen ever since the fall of man. Jesus brought with himself something no human baby had ever known, namely, the true image of God. So the world was the exact same place as Cain's. In fact, the earthly life of Jesus, the early life of Jesus, was surrounded by murderous evil as Herod went on a killing spree soon after Jesus was born. Life went on as normal even after the birth of the Lord. But his birth was different because it interrupted the historic flow of human births in that he did not inherit sin. So the world was the same place, but Jesus brought something new. But the point of Christmas, the point of Christmas was that this newness that Jesus brought was actually something that belonged to the human realm because he was born of a woman and he was born under the law. His birth inaugurated God's plan to reverse the effects of sin. And as we saw, the plan was to start this reversal from within humanity, not from outside, from under the law, not from above it. So let me try to connect some dots here for you by posing a question to get our thinking juices flowing this morning. Think about this with me. If the entrance of sin into the world, think about this, if the entrance of sin into the world changed the world in a real way as seen in the birth of Cain and its immediate effects, what would it mean for the world to have a human born without sin for the first time? Are you thinking about that question with me? If sin, let me put it this way, if sin had the power to change the world for the worse, wouldn't the birth of a sinless man also have the power to begin to reverse that? Wouldn't the incarnation of the Son of God be a world-changing event as well? Do we dare attributing less world-transforming power to the entrance of Jesus into the world than we do to the entrance of sin into the world? May it never be. It would be perfectly legitimate then to say that the, there is a life before Christmas and a life after Christmas. And this is literally true of time. Hence the B.C. A.D. distinction. The difference that the coming of Christ created is worldwide. But how can this be? We weren't even there when he was born. Jesus was his own human being, wasn't he? How can his incarnation be a benefit to us? Well, this is because Jesus came to save humanity by changing humanity from within. Before Christmas, and this is going to sound strange to you because of the tense, 
Before Christmas, we were humans living under God's rule. I said in one of my sermons in the past that this is our commonality, remember? The Son of God became a human under the law in order to sympathize with us, for that was our reality, humans living under God's rule. We were humans living under God's rule. Therefore, God's Son fully entered our reality by becoming like one of us. He wore our shoes. But he didn't wear our shoes in order to take them off at some point later on. Rather, he wore our shoes in order to keep them on forever. Something has changed. So, if before Christmas, we were humans living under God's rule, what is life after Christmas? Can we make any changes to that statement? Aren't we still humans? Well, yes, we are. But in answering this, let me clarify the following. When I speak of Christmas at this point in the game, I'm speaking of the entire work of Jesus as a human being, including his human birth, his human life, his human death, his human burial, his human resurrection, and his ascension as a glorified human. By life after Christmas, I mean life after all that Jesus did in his human flesh. The Son of God bound himself to humanity permanently in order to do something with our humanity. Now, it is true that a glorious future still awaits us. But the effects of Christmas are very present, a powerful reality. After all, the fullness of time has already reached into the present time. Something has changed. But what exactly changed after Christmas? Well, let me put it this way. Christmas was about one word. What is that one word? Sharing. Sharing. It wasn't just about the Son of God doing something for its own sake. It was about the Son of God doing something in order to share with us. Share what? Well, let's work up to the answer. Listen to this. When the heavenly host appeared on that first Christmas night, they said something, they sang something full of meaning. As they contemplated the baby lying on that manger, they sang, glory to God, where? In the highest and on earth, peace. Wow, what a statement. That song of angelic praise reveals something. The angels already knew that the abode of God, namely the highest, and the abode of men, namely earth, were somehow being brought together in that baby. The highest and the earth were beginning the process of reunion. What was once separated was now being brought back together. And the first step in this reunion was that the eternal Son of God, who dwelt where? In the highest, sympathized with us by entering what? Earth. Meaning, by entering our mode of existence. 
He was born of a woman, born under the law. Eventually, what happened to him? He died on a cross for our sins. On the third day, he bodily rose from the dead as a renewed and glorified human being. And the work he did as a man resulted in him receiving something. Can anybody tell me what did he receive after his work on the cross and resurrection? He received comprehensive what? Authority. Remember that? He received comprehensive authority. Where? In the highest. And where else? You know this, on earth. He received comprehensive authority. All authority. In the highest. And on earth, which reminds us of the angelic song, doesn't it? The same baby that prompted the angelic song about God's glory in the highest and man's peace on earth, the same baby, now a man, can say himself that he is the one in whom heaven and earth meet. How? He has authority over both realms. Did you hear that? An exalted and glorified man named Jesus has authority over both realms, the highest and the earth. Authority to do what? He now has all authority to share his heavenly life with earthly people. He now has the authority to share his heavenly life with earthly people. That's why he came. He has all authority to share his new, resurrected, glorified, and exalted life with us, or better yet, he now has all authority to begin the process of rebuilding what? The image of God in us. He has the authority to start rebuilding us, remaking us once again into the image of God. In other words, if you're filling in the notes, the Son of God entered our mode of existence as a man under the law, so that we might share in his new mode of existence. And this is precisely what our passage explains. It addresses this one question. After Christmas, who are we? After Christmas, who are we? The answer is this. Now, before Christmas, we were what? Humans living under God's rule. This is why Jesus was born of a woman under the what? Under the law, he sympathized with us. What about after Christmas? The answer is this. We are new creations living by the Spirit. We are new creations living by the Spirit. Having described the events of Christmas in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, meaning the redemptive work of the Son of God incarnate, Paul now proceeds to describe our new identity in verses 6 and 7, which come as a result of this redemptive work. When Moses entered Egypt in order to lead God's people through the Exodus and into the Promised Land for the purpose of fellowship with God, Israel's mode of existence went from slavery to freedom. Went from slavery to freedom. 
When the Son of God entered our humanity in order to lead us back to God so that we might know Him as Father, our mode of existence also changed even more deeply. Therefore, life after Christmas is primarily about us learning to see ourselves in a new light. Or as Paul said in Romans 6, 11, because of the incarnation of the Son of God, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is what we'll do this morning as we bring 2023 to a close and also next Sunday as we welcome 2024. Can you believe that? 2024 is already here. We will consider ourselves in a new light. The light of the incarnation of the Son of God. Everything has changed indeed. Let us then unpack what this sharing of Christ's life looks like. Who are we now that Christmas has come and gone? Who are we in light of the sympathy expressed by the Son of God who was born of a woman, born under the law? How should we think of ourselves in light of the work of the incarnate Son of God? Throughout these two sermons, both today and next Sunday, I will give you several descriptors that accurately explain who we are post-Christmas. This morning, we will only see two of them, saving the next for next Sunday. Now, let me be very clear as we enter into our text so that we avoid confusion. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, these descriptors are true of you regardless of how you feel about any of them at any given moment in your life because they are the result of the work of Jesus and are therefore rooted in Christ's finished work of redemption and not in your or my unreliable feelings. So if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, then these descriptors are true of you. So where do we start? Let's start where Paul started right at the beginning of verse 6. First, life after Christmas means you must consider yourself adopted by God. You must consider yourself adopted by God. Verse 6, and because you are sons. This is, of course, coming out of what Paul had just said at the end of verse 5. Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons. Once again, please notice that Paul is here making a statement. He's not asking us a question, nor is this an if statement. It is simply a declaration. It is a fact. We are sons, period. And he says that not because he has personal knowledge of each individual member of the church in Galatia. Likely, he doesn't. Rather, Paul can make such a statement because his confidence is in the effectiveness of the work of the incarnate Son. Since Jesus did that, then you are this. Since Jesus did that, then you are this. Now, the theme of adoption or of sonship is a central one in the biblical Narrative. Go with me to Exodus chapter 4, please, in your Bibles. We can trace it all the way back to Exodus. In fact, I will show you here the heart of the battle. The heart of the battle between God and Pharaoh was about this very thing, sonship. 
Why did God want Israel out of Egypt? The answer is given to us in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. As Moses is given instructions to return to Egypt in order to deliver Israel from captivity, God speaks these words to him. Listen to what God said to Moses. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my what? Firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Did you hear that, my friends? What did God call Israel? His son. His son. Not just his son, but his firstborn son. Is that significant? Well, duh, it's scripture, so it is significant, right? It is very significant because it lets us in a little secret. Israel, pay attention to this, don't miss this. Israel was to be God's firstborn son, but not God's only son. Israel was to be God's firstborn son in the sense of being the first people group called by God to himself, but they were not called to keep to themselves. Israel was set apart as God's firstborn son for a twofold purpose, to worship the true God and to call other nations to do the same. The Exodus was the event that meant to give Israel the freedom to live its God-given purpose for worship and missions. From the beginning, God's plan transcended Israel. It involved reaching the whole world through Israel, his firstborn son. Just think about it. Right after the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, God brought his firstborn son, Israel, to Mount Sinai. You remember that, right? And there he told them what they were to be. He told them, you are going to be to me a kingdom of what? Priests. As far as I understand it, a priest does not stand before God for his own sake only, but for the sake of what? Others. Israel then was to be a kingdom of priests, not just for themselves, but for the sake of the nations, inviting others to come to God through them. Through them. God had already told Abraham that in him, just a few families of the earth would be blessed. No, how many? All the families of the earth would be blessed. The adoption of Israel as God's firstborn son was meant to act as a preview of God's plan for the entire world. But Israel, as we know, failed to walk in obedience. They themselves became rebellious to God. And as you read the Old Testament, as you read it, it looks as though God's plan was being thwarted left and right. The people that were meant to be a light to the nations, they themselves became dark. God's worldwide adoption plan seemed to have been interrupted by Israel's unfaithfulness. God's firstborn son was neglecting his own calling of being a what to the world? 
a light to the world. But there is a passage in the Old Testament that opens up a whole new world of understanding for us. It's somewhere in between Genesis and Malachi. Can you guess what that is? Okay, let me help you. Turn to Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea. I'm going to give you some time to find it. Okay? That's not one that we go to often. Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. It is in the Old Testament. I'm just helping you out a little bit. As you make your way there, please keep, keep this in mind. This little verse, tucked right in the middle of the Old Testament, holds a double meaning. A double meaning. On the one hand, it is a historic reference to something that happened. On the other hand, it is a prophetic reference to something that was yet to come. Hosea, the prophet, was standing right in the middle of the historic and the prophetic. Okay, keep that in mind. Here's what it says, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a what? A child, I loved him. And then it says this, and out of Egypt, I call who? My son. See what I mean? Historically speaking, this is a reference to what? Can you think, can you think of the moment when Israel came out of Egypt? The Exodus. Historically speaking, this is a reference to the Exodus. God literally called his firstborn son, Israel, out of Egypt. But that's not the end of the meaning of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Prophetically speaking, this is a reference to a person. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. When Herod went on his killing spree, Joseph was instructed by angelic revelation to go hide with Mary and baby Jesus in Egypt until Herod died. Why did that happen? Matthew answers that question in Matthew 2 verse 15 with these words. Why did Joseph and Mary go and hide with baby Jesus in Egypt? This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Who is the prophet? Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew. Think about what Matthew's doing. Matthew takes the words spoken by prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1, and says that they were ultimately a prophecy about Jesus. What does any of this have to do with our adoption of sons? It has everything to do with me with it. I finished last week's sermon saying that Christmas is about retelling a story. Remember that? Or to be more, more precise, I said that Christmas is about the successful retelling of a story. Remember that I said that, the word successful? Jesus came to retell the story of Israel. But this time, he did it successfully. Now, let's put things together now. Israel was God's firstborn son, but he was unfaithful. Jesus came to be the faithful son. Israel was God's firstborn son through whom, don't miss this, through whom other nations could be called to come to God, invited to come. 
Israel was called to be a light for the nations, but they failed. Jesus came and could truthfully say about himself, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus, as the faithful son, came to fulfill in his own person the role that had been assigned to Israel. He placed himself under our own captivity, and being under the law, he died as a man. He died for our sins. He placed himself under the captivity of death itself in order to fully sympathize with us. But then something happened. As Jesus' body laid on that tomb, God did something he had already done in Egypt. In Egypt, God spoke to Pharaoh and said, let my son Go. Likewise, on that first Easter morning, as God looked upon the lifeless body of his son incarnate, God simply spoke to death and said, What? Let my son go. Immediately, the son returned to life, left the tomb empty, and 40 days later, he ascended into the presence of God. And what does Paul call the risen Jesus? He calls him the firstborn, meaning Jesus defeated the captivity of sin and death, and now as the faithful son, he can call the world to the Father. He is the faithful son, the firstborn from the dead. And now he can, as the song says, bring many sons to where? To glory. Now Gentiles from across all the corners of the earth can look to God through faith in Jesus, the faithful son, and call him father. You are sons and daughters because the firstborn son from the dead guarantees that you are now a full member of the family of God. Because of the faithful son of God, who was born of a woman, born under the law, sonship is now yours, is now mine. Consider yourself adopted by God. This is life after Christmas. This being the case, let us, brothers and sisters, strive for greater unity. Let us strive for greater unity. We are, after all, brothers and sisters in Christ with God as our Father. In light of our adoption as sons, let us pursue peace, the one we already have. Have you been welcomed by God as Father, as a son, as a daughter? Have I? Then we have the greatest thing in common. We have the greatest. Can you think of anything higher? I'm glad you can't. Let us be at peace. We are one family. But the question remains, doesn't it? How does this happen? How does Jesus share this new life with us? This question leads us to our second point, which is truly glorious, as if the first point wasn't glorious enough, Here it is. Life after Christmas means you must consider yourself united to Christ. You must consider yourself united to Christ. Verse 6 of Galatians 4, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Just in case you are not seeing it, let me bring something to the forefront of our meditations this morning. The doctrine of the Trinity is at the heart of everything. The doctrine of the Trinity is at the heart of everything. Do you see it? In verse 6, there are three divine persons involved here. The one doing the sending, namely the Father, 
the one sent, namely the Son, and then the one indwelling us, namely the Spirit. Behold the Trinity in all its glory. We didn't come up with it. It's all over the place. I say that the Trinity is at the heart of everything because without it, salvation would not be possible at all. The Trinity answers the question, this question, how do we participate in and benefit from the perfect and finished work of the incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus? The Trinity is the answer to that. Let me try to explain why. One day, as Jesus spoke with his disciples, he told them that he was going to go away. In fact, turn your Bibles to John chapter 16. I want to show you this so you can read it by yourself. Jesus told his disciples that he was going to go away. Upon hearing this, the disciples became sorrowful. In fact, if you read in John chapter 16, verse 6, it says that sorrow has filled your hearts. The disciples were confused. Why would the Lord go away? Why would he leave them? But then the Lord explained why. And in verse 7, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In a blessed irony, In a blessed irony, Jesus' physical absence from the world means his spiritual presence in the world. His departure meant his coming because his departure marked the sending of his spirit through whom Jesus joins himself to us and we are joined to him. The Spirit is the one through whom Jesus shares his heavenly life with us, earthly people. But let's dig a little deeper. Is that all right? Let's go a little deeper. In the Old Testament, think about this. In the Old Testament, when Gentiles wanted to join the Jews in worshiping the true and living God, what did they have to do? Well, they had to undergo circumcision of the flesh. In other words, other nations could join God's son, Israel, by receiving the sign of circumcision in the flesh. But life after Christmas is new. Life after Christmas is better. After Christmas, after the faithful work of the Son of God, born of a woman, born under the law, it is he himself, the faithful Son, who now has all authority to bring the whole world to join him in worshiping the true and living God. How? He now has the authority to circumcise. Not with hands but with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the sorrow that filled the heart of the disciples upon hearing of Jesus' departure was replaced with the Spirit who has now been sent to our hearts. Hence, Paul's description of the kingdom of God. How did he describe the kingdom of God? It's about, being, it's about joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is Christ with us. And we can, even now, in this very world, during this very earthly life, begin to participate in the heavenly life of Christ through the work of the Spirit. So consider yourself united to Christ by the Holy Spirit and live accordingly. 
In the Spirit, you are united to the one who has brought you near to God. In the Spirit, you are united to the one who sympathized with you by entering your very mode of existence as a human under the law in order to set you free. In the Spirit, you are united to the one who placed himself under the curse of the law by dying, thus removing the curse. And in the Spirit, you are united to the one who went through death and into a new mode of existence. In the Spirit, you are one with the one who now lives before the presence of God with fullness of joy. That's your life right now. This is life after Christmas. Let us then strive for greater holiness in our lives. The Spirit of the Son has been given to our hearts. Let us pursue greater conformity to the character of Jesus by putting to death what is earthly in us and seeking the fruit of the Spirit. For we are now in Christ, and if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. We walk by the Spirit. So I leave you with one final question and we will end. The question of questions. Do you believe, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh to die for our sins and who rose again from the dead? If yes, and you haven't done so, then profess your faith to the world through baptism. Be baptized. Proclaim your union with the one who has set you free. Can you think of a better way to begin the new year than to telling the world, I have believed in the one who died and rose again? If that's your desire, then talk to somebody about it. And let us rejoice together in this new life we have, this new life after Christmas. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this simple yet important reminder of who we are, that something has truly changed because of the coming of your Son. And just as the world changed through the entrance of sin, the world has also changed because of the entrance of the Holy One, the Lord Jesus, who became like one of us, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, You have sent your spirit into our hearts and we are one with him. Whatever the circumstances might be in our lives, help us to rejoice in this truth, that we have been adopted by you and that we are one with Jesus and that nothing in this world will be able to separate us from your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.